training, mindset, integrity, incremental improvement. What can you do better today? Start right here with the Pendola Project. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Pendola Project. This is your host, Matt Pendola. And this is your other host, Jake Parker, with episode 55. We are once again joined by Billy Haug. He has a master's in nutrition from Columbia University. And today, the topic, calories in versus calories out. Because, Matt, anyone who is interested in fitness has probably either asked this question or been asked this question, how many calories should I consume? Yeah, do your calories count well of course they do do you need to fit it with your macros or what's that phrase that they say if um, it fits your macros oh man drives me nuts right so we talked a lot about why we need to focus more on calories in versus calories out and how that really works and of course we gave some teasers about what the thermodynamic effects are of our training and our lifestyles. We talked a little bit more in depth about some of these issues while we had Billy in the house because he is sort of the research guru. And again, check out the newsletter. Billy did write up some great articles for us in our first newsletter. Billy, nice to have you in the studio, bud. Great to be here, Matt and Jake. Yeah, some of the other topics that we covered were things like how many calories should you be eating versus your friend who's on this many, and does your training affect how many calories if you're at a deficit, how much of a deficit, and also how many calories are you just burning when you're sitting there? Because I hate to tell you this, but if you're hoping that the majority of your calorie expenditure is going to come from that stationary bike, you got a long day ahead of you. Yeah, and surprise, surprise, we talked about a lot of the misinformation out there, about the influencers out there, and what we've been taught versus what we really need to know. I'm very excited, actually, about this particular podcast. I feel like we really gave a lot of much needed information and these misconceptions that are really disappointing to hear maybe because we've been told different things for so long, for so many years even. But it's it's good to know sometimes the best thing you can do is reboot, reset, and just say, you know what, I'm going to take this information. I'm going to create a new understanding about how I can attain a better version of me and I'm not going to look in the past and decide that what I've been doing is all wrong. That's not really the point either, but it's about arming yourself with better information and being able to move forward with more purposeful progress. Take this, episode 55, all about those calories. Here with episode 55, we're kind of continuing the theme from our last episode. Last time we talked a lot about the keto diet, ketosis. We had our guest, Billy Haug. This time, we're going to talk about the timeless question. I know all three of us have faced multiple times, calories. How many calories should I be taking in? If I had a nickel for every time I heard that question, you guys. Billy, you recently got your master's degree in human nutrition from Columbia. Yes, sir. I love it. That's amazing. And so I I love these topics when we get to talk to Billy because he is much more knowledgeable in the field of nutrition than I, and I have lots of questions for Billy too. And so I love when we get to share with you Billy's knowledge. Billy, thanks again for coming in. What do you think? um, How many times have you heard the question, how many calories should I be eating? Uh, by this point, it's not even worth considering. You know, it's, it's outside of the realm of what I can fit on two hands. So 
just start not keeping track by that point. Let's see. I've got uh, two hands and two feet. That's 20. Yeah, it's more than oh, that. Oh, you count so. your toes. That, Absolutely. That's some next level stuff. Absolutely, you know? man. I'm well above that, too. And I, I just I feel for people because they... they often seem to make this question a lot more complicated than it needs to be. And I know that there's more to it. Obviously, you have a master's degree in human nutrition. Obviously, there's more to it than this. But calories in versus calories out, man, like it, it kind of boils down to that. Right. So basically what we're doing here, right, is we're operating under these models, right? And no models are fully correct, even in theoretical physics, right? That's why we're constantly evolving. That's the purpose of the scientific method. But there's definitely models that are useful. And while calories in, calories out, obviously doesn't explain the whole picture all the time, it's a certainly useful metric to determine how much energy someone's taking in, how much they're expending, and how that filters into the total equation. Absolutely. So, Matt, the average American out there, men, women, everybody, what are some of the average numbers for calorie intake that you see? Yeah, so the average man is taking in about 2,800 calories a day. Average uh, woman is taking in about 1,800 calories a day. But yet we are still overweight to obese as a nation. So those are things that we want to talk about to start. And why is it that if we're spending a billion dollar industry on supplements and every diet seems to have its turn, every mega diet has a macronutrient that it vilifies and then we all become convinced that we need to fit our macros a certain way and that's going to be the answer or we need to have a certain system that's going to work for everybody we need to educate ourselves a little bit more and understand what we've been doing isn't working so in episodes 50 Three and 54, we talked more about some of these vilifications. And so listen to that. But I want to just bring into this situation what I commonly hear and why I think that is. So everybody who comes up to me and asks me about their nutrition or wants to know what it is I think they should do, they always end up asking me very similar questions. How much should I eat? Or just tell me what I should eat. I'll do it. And then my life will be great. If only it were that simple. Yeah. So the first thing that I need everyone to do is to actually know. They need to know what they've been taking in in the first place. So if I have a person who is taking in, let's say, three days at least. I mean, I prefer a little longer, but at least three days to look at their average. Maybe they understand intuitively that uh, what they're eating McDonald's, let's say, or they're eating some foods that are not the healthiest to serve them, but they know that, but at the same time, they don't really realize how many calories really are added up that way. But also, so that makes them a little bit more aware of what they're actually taking in. Usually when they log things down for a few days, definitely the light bulb comes on and they say, wow, I, I really thought I was eating less than that. But then on the other end of that, thinking that they should only eat a certain amount of restricted calories, that's the wrong thinking too. So what we want to do is just find out what the average is and then say, okay, what is the goal? Realistically, what do we want to be able to do here? You might in the first few weeks lose some water weight, glycogen, right? Muscle has a lot of water in it. So immediately we we tend to 
drop some water weight when we restrict ourselves. And especially if we are depleting carbs and those kind of scenarios, I don't like personally. I think that when I hear about somebody dropping a ton of weight really quickly, that's always a red flag to me. I'm happy for them that they can see that they're losing some weight, but I'm thinking more long-term and a lot of times they're not. So when we talked about this last episode, it's likely the weight that they're not trying to lose. It's if it's water weight, which, you know, every gram of carbohydrate you take in, you're going to store two to three grams of water. And that's what we talked about with uh, people making weight cuts and how they're able to manipulate their water weight and sodium intake to make those numbers. But that's not the kind of weight loss people find helpful or meaningful. What they actually mean is fat loss or adipose tissue around the whole body or sometimes visceral adipose tissue, which is that kind of fat that's associated with metabolic syndrome and some of these chronic health conditions. Uh, And that's really what they seek to lose. And that's the kind of weight or mass that's not going to come off in a matter of days, right? So those initial results likely aren't the ones that you're ultimately trying trying to get. So what's the main problem here, guys, is that a lot of times I feel like people, let's say that we are in a marathon. This is the analogy I think of. We're in a marathon and this could be marriage, right? This could be nutrition. This is many things in our life. But if we go on to a diet, I feel like we're just running that first mile, like as fast as we can. And then after that, we expect to be able to continue running. But no, we just run as fast as we can. We have to stop. We can't keep going. We're not going to finish that marathon. In other words, we restrict our calories to that extreme. And yeah, we might get to a certain weight quicker, but then we're not most likely going to be able to stick with that very long. And certainly we're not going to be able to stick with it long term. So we need slight deficits. Um, Any recommendations there, Billy, on deficits or for hard gainers, increasing weight? Well, again, the numbers are are certainly going to vary, but just echoing what you said, the harder you cut, the harder you restrict, the harder your body's going to fight back. It goes against our very evolutionary drives, right? Because when we were living off the land and didn't have constant access to food as in the environment we have today, every time you were able to have access to food, it would basically mean you're trying to to consume or save as much as possible. And more times than not, you're in a state of fasting. So you're almost always in a deficit, right? But bring this back. Another thing is people think they have to be in this huge surplus to gain muscle. And really, we don't see that be the case. Uh, And we've done this in controlled metabolic ward studies, right? If I had to throw a number out there, somewhere in the realm of 200 to 300 calories uh, surplus is probably work for most people. And again, this is somewhere where weighing yourself uh, daily, uh, bi-weekly, even a couple of weeks, you should start to track these changes and things will start to make sense. Implemented a surplus of this amount and I gained point whatever kilograms per week. Good chance most of that is as long as your training is also in check. That's another important factor, right? You have to be doing the right kind of resistance training. Hopefully most of that is going to be coming in the form of lean tissue, right? It's, it's when people are like, oh, in order, if you're going to go on a bulk, it's just this all or nothing. Like you better be doing gallon of milk a day, you know, 2000 calorie like excess and sorry, like I don't think there's any time anyone should be recommended to aggressively gain weight like that, even if they're in a very intense resistance training program, because likely most of that's going to be adipose tissue and not lean body mass. 
There's only so much that your body is going to be able to adjust to at once. And I think that's also part of the misconceptions out there. Like if you're strength training, like you mentioned, and you're lifting heavy weights and you're thinking, okay, I'm, I want to gain muscle. So I'm going to drink that gallon of milk every day and I'm just going to stuff myself full of calories and it's just all magically going to go towards muscle. That's, that doesn't work that way either. If only it were that easy. Right. So you can actually take in too much protein. And that's another topic I think that has to be a part of this conversation for athletes out there that are just sort of piling in the protein. And there's a point where it's just, you know, now it's kind of expensive pee, isn't it, Billy? Right. Well, I mean, there's really no too much protein. There's too much and it starts to become disadvantageous towards your goals, right? So in the case of an athlete, uh, most of the research recommends an intake that's actually two times the RDA. So the RDA RDA being the recommended dietary allowance, which is 0.8 grams per kilogram per day. So the recommendation for most athletes is 1.6 grams per kilogram per day. So if you're dealing in freedom units in pounds, that's about 0.6 grams per pound, which really isn't that high. So in like a 70 kilogram individual on a 2000 calorie day diet, this would be like 20% of your daily calories. And in that same model, you would have like something like 30% coming from fat and 50% from carbohydrate. So really these high protein diets aren't that high. They just seem high in comparison to the RDA, which in research studies is what they're using as their baseline value. Uh, And there's even some research that for people, bodybuilders cutting aggressively in their last phase of training, even uh, an intake of 3.1 grams per kilogram of protein um, helps attenuate that lean body mass loss. The point is, and what you were, tr- I could see where you're getting at, is overdoing any of these macronutrients is obviously going to put you into a caloric excess that may exceed what your goals entail, right? So again, there shouldn't be this fixation on protein is that, oh, in order to get more muscle, it's like a one-to-one comparison of just eat more protein, right? There's certainly a range, which I just spoke of, that you should shoot for. And outside of that, don't worry about it, right? And for most of us in that our weights aren't to the point where we need to supplement with certain protein powders. For someone like me, I can get it through my diet relatively easily. For others, maybe like a strongman competitor or a powerlifter who's definitely in that higher weight range, they may necessitate a protein supplement, right? But again, the whole thing we're trying to do here is not try to overcomplicate these things. So we can take the totality of the evidence and make uh, a recommendation off of that. And outside of that, just leave it there. Yeah, carbs can have a protein sparing effect. And so in other words, if you eat enough carbs, you might not have to worry about getting in as much protein. Your body does figure it out. And I think that's where we're trying to relay this information to the listeners is like, we, when I said expensive pee, we could be spending some hard earned dollars, especially some of my athletes that are really on a budget. And then they're trying to buy supplements that they think they have to have in order to be able to perform a certain way. And, and they, they may just be wasting that hard earned money that they need for other things. Right. Well, like, like is- good, like food and enough calories. It, the expensive pee comes in when you're taking in vitamins, right? Especially yeah. water-soluble vitamins. Uh, the vitamin C, if you exceed 1,000 milligrams, you're just going to pee the rest out. With protein, obviously with amino acids, they're defined as such because they have a nitrogen in their molecular structure, right? And when that's metabolized in the body, it gets metabolized to ammonia, which is toxic, <laughs> which is why we transform it into urea. And that's what leaves in the urine, right? So toxic pee. But, the, the, <laughs> but the, the carbon atoms of that backbone are just going to be converted into fat or stored as fat if you don't need that energy right away. And bringing back again, 
the whole point of taking in protein in these certain windows is to maximize its anabolic properties, right? We want to strike that muscle protein synthesis. So you mentioned carbs having a protein sparing effect. The reason that occurs is I can use that carbs to satisfy my energy needs versus turning to my amino acid stores to trigger gluconeogenesis, which is the formation of glucose from amino acids. Instead, those amino acids I just took in can go towards my goal of building muscle. Yeah. So what you just mentioned is why I do find that my athletes oftentimes do and should have a protein supplement nearby. There's times when they actually do need it as a resource, but I just think that it gets overdone. It gets overused. And there's, again, these misconceptions about how much we need and thinking that we're just, if more is better and we're just, we're just going to put in more into our bodies and it's going to somehow magically transform us into this, uh, you know, more muscular physique or, or something like that, that we're going for, but there's no magic to it. And the same thing is true for losing weight, right? Billy? Yeah. Well, and again, it's all about what makes most sense for you. So for someone who maybe has to work out and then go straight to work, maybe they don't have much appetite, but they still want to get something in uh, so they can sustain to their break or whatever, a protein shake makes perfect sense. Absolutely. And so, yeah, I, I mean, I love that we're bringing up these subjects because again, we're not vilifying a, a certain supplement or we're not saying don't use supplements. I am personally trying to use less and less on the supplement end of things. As I learn more and understand more, it does become more evident to me that I don't really need as much as I used to think I need. And I figure, well, if, if I'm at that point, man, there there's probably a lot more people out there thinking they need these things, right? I can speak to that because I'm one of those people who does use a protein shake when I'm at work simply because of time restrictions and availability. My question for you, Billy, is I have often heard that your body can only take in a certain number of grams of protein at a time. So you're talking about, you know, the expensive pee, like if you really overdo it on the protein, it's not going to be used for what you're thinking. Is there a time component to that? Yeah. So that's a great question, Jake. And that's a, another thing we hear, a myth, right? That your body can only absorb so much protein, which if that were the case, we could overfeed on protein all day long. I could take in a thousand shakes a day and I wouldn't gain weight, right? I right. would somehow excrete it, which would probably like destroy my kidneys, but whatever, <laughs> beyond the question, there's multiple reasons for why that doesn't make sense. And I, and I alluded to it earlier, basically you're breaking down those amino acids using the carbons for fuel or fuel storage and then making enzymes with the amino acids themselves or whatever protein needs for the demand of that time. Going back to your question of timing, as far as the research on that is, and this is kind of the adage you'll hear of like somewhere in the three to four meals a day range, something like that, that's very popular in the bodybuilding sphere. And there is some merit to that because there's this thing called the muscle full effect or a protein refractory period. So one of the amino acids that's key into muscle growth that we know of, it's one of the branch chain amino acids, it's leucine. Somewhere in the range of 2.8 to 3 grams of that will trigger this muscle protein synthesis. But if you were to say take in 20 grams of protein, 3 grams coming from leucine, right? And then an hour and a half later, do that same thing. Your muscle effect is still full. So that meal you just had wouldn't go into further muscle protein synthesis. So there is a refractory period that you have to surpass in order for that protein to be utilized for muscle protein synthesis again. So that's why we see the recommendation of like have a meal and then three to five hours later have another if the goal is to like get jacked. So Lynn, let's just kind of sum this up with 
calories in versus calories out, how many do we need to take in to serve us or to get us towards our goals, whether it be to lose weight or to gain weight? What, what do we need to do? Remember that logging is probably the first step that you have to commit to, or I would suggest you commit to, because if you don't know yourself well enough yet, you're not able to just make those intuitive decisions and understand the why behind it. So you do have to do a little bit of the work up front. And so it's like, yeah, you got to show your work, right? It's not just enough to have the answer, right? Would the teacher make you do in school? You had to show your work, right? So this is where I believe that you do. You have to show your work. I, I feel like um, this intuitive eating mental flexibility is something that I love to teach my athletes athletes. And I think that it's absolutely what we all should be working towards. I don't have to count my calories. I don't have to do that. I haven't had to do that in a long, long time. I have a really good understanding about what I need, what kind of energy levels that I need for what, but also I just, it's so basic at this point is, do I feel good? Do I feel energetic? Am I sleeping enough? Am I getting in enough recovery? All these things are super, super relevant for your long-term goals. But when we get stuck on, well, I'm supposed to take in 1,630 calories a day. I mean, there's so many factors involved that that answer just cannot always be true. And that's just, by the way, a number I just threw out there. So don't please don't write that down. So th these are things that I think we all need to consider. But once we have that map, right? So we have shown our work and we have figured out what it is we've been doing and we know that where we're currently at is not optimal for us, then we can decide on whether or not it's going to be a deficit or a surplus depending on our goals. And like Billy said, uh, I like that you said between two and 300 calories because what I usually suggest is around 250 is what, again, just kind of what I think is a safe bet. It may be a slower route, but I know that no one's going to go starving if if they're creating a deficit and they're not going to feel bloated all the time if they're trying to increase their weight. And then from there, they can continue to make adjustments. And what I would suggest is that you stick with the marathon, not the sprint, and that we really start to focus more on what it is that we need for ourselves to feel good, to be able to be consistent with these things and not trying to get into anything that's going to get us there as quickly as possible, but thinking more about as healthy as possible. So with the calories in versus calories out, I think that everybody has a different number, but also remember that even that number that we might be able to come up with should fluctuate depending on what you're doing, what your goals are, how active you are, et cetera. Yeah. So that logging and that base takes care of the calories in part, right? But something we should probably touch on is the calories out, right? So the things that make up your metabolism, uh, the majority of which being your basal metabolic rate or resting metabolic rate, this is anywhere between 60 and 80% of the actual energy that your body's going to use just to maintain its vital capacity. So what your organs are doing, stuff like that at rest, hence the name resting metabolic rate. 10 to 15% is going to be what's known as the thermic effect of food. So this is actually what it takes to digest and process the food you're taking in uh, and different macronutrients have different properties. So the 
macronutrient with the highest thermic effect of food is actually protein. And then that last 5 to 10% is going to come from the form of whatever activity you're doing. So this could be what we know as NEAT, which is non-exercise activity thermogenesis. And then that means the other portion is whatever you're doing as uh, volitional activity. So that would be, you know, resistance training or or cardiovascular activity, you're training for a marathon, whatever. So let's take our hypothetical person, Joe, right? Joe is just one of those type A go-getters, right? He's training for CrossFit competition, training for a half marathon. That's his activity, right? He also works three jobs. He's a, he's a coach. He's a waiter. So he's constantly on his feet and he's a teacher at a preschool. So let's just make it even crazier. You know, he's dealing with <laughs> kids running around all the time. So he's obviously moving a ton, right? So that's going to change his calories out definitely of the equation versus someone who's just like, maybe they're injured. So they're not doing any activity. They're out of work. Um, so that's going to change substantially, right? Again, your BMR and RMR are going to make up the majority of that, which is why it's so important, as Matt says, to establish your baseline. And there's even calculators you can use online. I don't in recommend you invest too heavily in these because they've been shown to be notoriously inaccurate, but it does give you a rough number to shoot for. Again, it's going to be need to incorporate it in your overall log. I'm glad you brought that up because that was a question that I had for you. Do you have any experience with like calorie calculators and even even the fancier fitness watches that will estimate how many calories you've burned? I since the first day I saw those, I've been skeptical of those. Like how does this machine that I put my hands on for 10 seconds have any idea about my body and what energy it's using? I'm glad you brought that up because if there's one thing I could recommend totally against is using these fitness trackers to somehow monitor your actual expenditure. Same thing with the calorie counters on the treadmill you see at the gym. They are notoriously, notoriously inaccurate, mostly to your detriment. So it's not like they'll underestimate the amount of calories you're burning. They're usually overestimated. So if you're the type of person who's tracking or trying to do your log and you decide to eat back those calories, you're going to undermine your goals, right? And same with the fitness trackers. Most of them are using this heart rate technology, which in a running sense, is probably the most accurate. It's basically using this laser light to transmit through your veins and then back up to the reader to try to give you a rough estimation of your heart rate, which can be correlated to METS, which is metabolic equivalence of activity. So it's basically plugging all these numbers into equation to estimate how much you're actually burning. And th cyclic activities like cycling, running, swimming even, it can be, a, again, a good estimate if you're someone like that who's an, at the elite level really trying to track these things. But if you're just someone who's exercising, you know, for the benefits of enjoyment or good health and you're using this thing as like the end-all be-all, I would recommend against that. Especially if I'm lifting weights without headphones versus lifting weights while listening to like death metal and my heart rate's going to be a little bit right. higher. I'm, am I really burning that many more calories? I doubt it. Yeah, there's all this uh, vulnerability for systematic error that can happen. So, again, I wouldn't pay too much attention to the number you're actually seeing on the screen. Do you recommend any accurate ways or more accurate ways, I should say, to calculate calories out? Does it exist? It certainly exists. I mean, the gold standard way, which is unless you want to volunteer for a study and lock yourself in a metabolic ward where they're actually monitoring, you know, the carbon dioxide you're breathing out, um, there's really no easy way to do it. With that being said, the methods we talked about earlier is just logging your your days and also coinciding that with if you had the hard workout for the day, right? You can kind of 
scoot your way around. And again, some of these predictors, you can find them online anywhere. Some of the, the tracking apps like MyFitnessPal will allow you to enter in activity. And while they're not perfect, again, they give you a rough estimate. And as long as you're consistent with those measurements, right, the key is consistency because you're able to track those trends over time. It's less about the actual number and more about the trends you're seeing. And I like that because it, it reminds me of if I just Googled right now how many calories are in an avocado, well, what about a really big avocado? Right. You know, like not all strawberries are the same size. What is a handful of strawberries? Yeah, it's like the sorites paradox, right? When does a heap of sand cease to become a heap? As you start exactly. taking a grain away, eventually you're just going to get at one grain of sand. When did it stop becoming a heap, right? If you use these really arbitrary things like one avocado, you're probably going to make some systematic errors, especially if it's a higher caloric density food like an avocado with fats or like a big one that's used an example is like nut butter oh i think that's a tablespoon well really i just measured out like half a cup and just added you know an additional 500 calories on so again it's just all about the consistency of the measurement tool you're making and not getting super fixated on the details because these energy density measurements of food are measured precisely to the gram right so you're better off like trying to be more precise than just like eye guessing it if you really want to like attract judiciously. Again, that's not necessary for everyone, but if you're going to do it, at least do it right. At least do it right. Sagely advice, Billy. I've got another question for you, man. I've heard that if you, for example, gain more muscle, like if you're doing some strength training and you're, you're eating the right number of calories, if you're gaining muscle, is that muscle serving your resting metabolic rate. So when I have already gained the muscle and now I'm just chilling, am I burning more calories than I was before? Definitely. And you see this in some of these estimators we were talking about as far as how much energy you're actually expending based on a certain activity. It's also based on your total body weight, right? So different tissues will burn different amounts at at rest uh, with fat being, I, I might butcher these numbers a little bit, but I think it's somewhere like four kilocalories per gram, right? Muscles on the higher end, more like 13 kilocalories. So muscle is definitely higher, right? But relative to other tissues, such as your vital organs, which is why they make the majority of your RMR, things like your kidney and your liver and like the 200, 300 kilocalorie range, uh, your brain is even more than that. It's the most metabolically costly organ, right? So while it is true, and that's a really good point, and as Matt was talking off mic, resistance training in and of itself isn't actually burning that many calories. He used the uh, example of moving a weight, a certain prescribed amount of distance, a certain weight on the bar. And just speaking in the numbers, it seems like a ton of weight, but you're actually burning like one calorie or something. Mm -hmm. Where it comes in into play is what you just mentioned. If you're doing a properly designed resistance training program with the goal of hypertrophy or building muscle mass, that additional muscle mass you gain is definitely going to burn more at rest and increase your metabolic rate more than putting on equivalent mass in fat tissue would. So, you know, why, why is this important to know? And this comes back to, I think that most people underreport the calories they take in. So they just misunderstand even reading labels. Sometimes we have to know, uh, here's a good one. I was just reading about this spray can of oil that you can use for cooking. And it says actually zero calories or calorie uh, free. Well, anything that's going to be under five calories, they, you don't really have to report calories. Oh, right. On the label. So, but I mean, obviously it's an oil, so it has to have right, calories. Right. So people are just spraying like all of this. Oil. But if you read closely, it's talking about zero calories for a quarter second spray. 
Well, I mean, come on. The, Let me get my stopwatch out. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? So really, how many calories are you taking in? Well, we might be taking in 20, 30, 40 every time we do that. We might be using this, oh, this is great. This is this spray I can use all the time for my cooking, and it's got zero calories. And I'm not making fun. I mean, if, if this was not what I do for a living, I probably wouldn't pay attention to a lot of these things either. So, But you have to realize that sometimes the calories are off, even on the labels you're reading, you're you're not seeing the fine print. But then also we need to look at our calories burned. So what Billy's talking about here, I think we we can also fall to the influence of, say, high-intensity interval training where I just burned a whole bunch of calories and I'm going to be burning a ton of calories for the next 72 hours, I heard. And it really doesn't equate to that many calories burned, guys. You're, you're talking about a few extra calories, 30, 40 extra calories maybe. And, um, you know, we've already talked about this before, but your idea of high-intensity interval training, that's reserved for some athletes, but most people, what they're more interested in whether they know it or not is more of sort of the moderate intensity intervals and we will talk about that in a future uh, podcast but i'm going to stick with this concept right now guys is that not only are we probably taking in more calories than we realize especially if we're not logging we're not reading the fine print but also because we're doing this high intensity interval training session or because we went and lifted heavy or we spent an hour and a half in the gym and we're thinking that that that's where we just burned all these calories. Now, what do we do? We go out and have that cheat meal because I can. Because I earned it. Right. I earned it. Right. And I mean, I, I, I kid you not, I was working with this. I mean, he was really great, elite cyclist even, but he had a, a bit of a gut, right? Mm-hmm. And you could clearly see that he was not in his optimal body weight. Okay. So he was storing a lot of additional energy, we'll say, right? But he actually was drinking a Coke and and saying, yeah, I, he was just doing his third biking session. I'm not exaggerating. Third biking session that day. Okay. And he had spent over six hours on the bike that day. Okay. And he was saying, yeah, I do all that so I can have, I can eat what I want or I can have this Coke when I want. Right. And I'm looking, I'm going, well, clearly that's not working for you. <laughs> so again, you know, he's misunderstanding biking, by the way, on a stationary bike, it's, you're not actually, that's like the worst way to burn calories. You don't have to do any of the balance. You're much better at biking outside. I feel for people who spend so much time doing those things, man. Right. So there's just, again, these just misinterpretations or misunderstandings conceptions about what we hear about epoch for example right so that excessive post oxygen consumption yeah so uh, billy i know you've talked about that subject before but again this is our calorie conversation so let's talk about that a little bit how many calories do we burn after a hit workout and again, and again that's misunderstood but let's just stick with that for now how many calories do we burn doing something really intense really hard in the next 72 hours do you think probably the main determinant of that is going to be your body weight, right? Right. Uh, I'm kind of getting off track here, but there was actually a study done recently or a, uh, a tactic used for those doing weight cuts. Because one of the things that happens is, you know, people talk about like metabolic damage or metabolic adaptation. And those are words with negative connotations that don't aren't very helpful. But the shred of tr- truth they do have is, yeah, you're going to simply by losing some sort of tissue, whether that's from fat lean mass, or ultimately both, you're going to be burning less calories at rest simply because you weigh less. 
So right. something they're trying to do now, I know they're doing this with fighters, is actually during a cut phase is having them wear a weighted vest around. So when they're walking and doing some of these things, not being at rest, which is we quantify these activities through metabolic equivalents, which I spoke to earlier, things like sitting at rest is zero metabolic equivalents. Uh, I'm just throwing out numbers here. Walking would be like three, jogging six, et cetera. Uh, you get into this higher end stuff that you'd see in these high intensity interval training. Stuff like running is in the teens. I think burpees are like 15, one of the, like <laughs> the highest ones you can do. But the point is, if you were wearing like a weight vest during these, you're at least eliminating one of those variables of, oh, I'm simply, now I'm moving around the same amount of mass I was a few weeks ago. So the theory is like, okay, I'm mitigating some of that down regulation that happens naturally through the cut process. So I'd like to wrap this up with a little bit more about what can we do or how can we be more mentally flexible in this process. So the key takeaway here is that the calories in versus calories out equation, it works. It works every single time, but it doesn't work if we're not tracking. We can't just guess at it. Over time, we can start to understand more intuitively what we need. And we have an idea, like if you're following a map and you eventually start to figure out what that route is without having to look at the map anymore. That's how we start to go with a little bit more of our gut, so to speak, or intuitively to know where we need to get to. But we had to originally learn how to read the map, how to follow the map. We had to do the work at first, and then we could start to use more of our instincts to get us the rest of the way once we understood where we were going. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like you don't just get in the car for the first time and go, I got this. Right. And yeah, that's a perfect point. And a counter argument a lot of people use, which again, I don't think everyone needs to count calories. I certainly don't. And it's not something people need to do for the rest of their lives. Actually, at that point, it comes detrimental, right? And by listening to this podcast, some people will be able to understand straight off the bat. And an argument you'll hear is, well, our ancestors didn't have to do that. They ate intuitively all the time. And like, of course, that's awesome. Like, obviously, it's in our hard wiring, right? However, what's changed is the environment we're living in, right? We're living in a default obesogenic environment. That's why we've seen the trend of obesity correlate with the amount of calories we take in and not like single things that have been villainized like sugar. Sugar intake has actually decreased in the past few years, yet obesity rates have still increased. So obviously these laws of thermodynamics, these laws of physics still apply and they're there whether you acknowledge them or not. So the thing we're trying to let you do is acknowledge them if you feel like it's necessary, you can even track it and get more deep into the weeds that way. However, just be be aware that these things exist and that they do matter. Yeah, so the calories in versus calories out conversation here hopefully has started to give you a better idea about where to start. But I do think that when you do start off your process, you have to find out what your set point is, and that takes some tracking. And also, I think that you should check in with yourself once in a while, and especially when I have a new goal, then that's when a lot of times I will get in maybe a few days again, just to kind of see where I'm at and make sure that if I've made some changes in my selections or in my training, then I'm sort of matching that up by creating that set point again or checking in with that set point. And then I think that really guys, like Billy said, you shouldn't be tracking forever. You shouldn't be tracking all the time. And that gets really old. And if you are an elite athlete or you're trying to get at a very specific 
very fine-tuned, granular goal, then that's where probably calorie tracking is a little bit more necessary again. So those are kind of the the two ends, right? The two bookends of when you track your calories and, and why. But hopefully that we take away from this is that we're probably not burning as many calories as we think we are. We might be taking in more calories than we think we are taking in. And we can take control of this. We can do something about it and once we arm ourselves and we give ourselves the ability to take control now, we start to empower ourselves and we're in control again of our own process and we don't feel so vulnerable. And I hope that people out there listening, they really do this. What I'm really trying to do, hopefully, is I'm trying to give people good information where they can make the right choices for them. But I'm also hopefully giving them good enough information where they're not subject to clicking on that clickbait information that now I'm going to give my hard-earned cash and more detrimentally my hopes towards this magic pill or something. And at the same time, even clicking on to unfortunately influencers in my own industry that are going to sell you this specific program just for your body type. And it's, you know, all this stuff is just specifically for you. And then you, you buy this, sometimes it's expensive with high, high hopes and thinking, okay, well, this has got to work. This is so specific. And it's just another gimmick to get you to spend your hard-earned money and put your hopes towards something that's not going to work because you're not the one driving the bus. You need to drive the bus. So I will tell you guys again, I'm going to say this in 10 years from now, though. When somebody asks me how many calories should I be taking in, my answer is I don't know how many calories you should be taking in. Yet I feel that no matter how many times this subject comes up, People end up listening to that person who's giving them these exact numbers or these exact workouts, and they actually think that they're the ones that know what they're talking about because they're giving them an answer. The fact is they're not giving them a solution. And that's the problem that I see in this landscape. I think as soon as you set that base, that set point, now you can learn to trust your intuition more. But without it, your intuition may not be leading you down the right path. And as always, we love to hear from you. You can email us with your questions, your problems, and maybe we can help you with some solutions. Pendolaproject at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram. And if you go to our website, pendolatraining.com, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter, which, just because we have them here in the studio, Billy Haug wrote. Yeah, so I wrote a couple articles in there. It's actually pretty much all the coaches at Pendola Training. We give you reading recommendations, stuff for listening to, uh, upcoming events. But yeah, a couple articles I wrote for uh, about GMOs, if you need to worry about them, hint, hint, not really, and expectancy effects in training. So things like steroids, they have a placebo effect. So I won't give away too much more. If you want to check out more, follow the link in the Pendola Project Instagram bio, and it'll... Uh, let you sign up there. Yeah, man. Thanks for listening.